Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Those are, right, those are thrilling things we just sang. Um, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. We've just publicly defied the devil. How dare we do that, right? It's only because of what Christ has done. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand, right? The risen, ascended, reigning, living Christ. That's why we're here tonight, to celebrate the ascended Christ. I am, if you can't tell, I'm very excited to be here with you, okay? Now, Mark said they had to scratch their heads quite a bit um, to figure out who was going to speak when my father-in-law couldn't make it. And as I sat next to Mark, I can still see some of the marks from the scratching. They did a lot of scratching and must have gotten down, down deep into the bottom of the barrel to have me come here tonight. But I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad you were that desperate. And uh, I had the chance to serve you tonight by opening up God's word to you. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. I want to look at a passage with you there in chapter 16. As I've already said, tonight we've chosen, we have the freedom to do this in Christ, we've chosen to meet midweek on a Thursday night and to focus our attention on one specific aspect of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, namely his ascension, right? That historical event that was read for us just a bit ago from Acts chapter 1. After Jesus was crucified on the cross, after he was laid in a tomb, 40 days after he rose from the dead, and appeared numerous times to his disciples, instructing them about the kingdom of God, we're told that bodily he was lifted up from the earth. God the Father raised him again, this time from earth back up into heaven. The ascended Christ back in the presence of God the Father in heaven. And in light of that, I want to consider with you John chapter 16, verses 16 to 33. Interestingly, John in his gospel does not record for us the physical ascension of Jesus like Luke does. Nevertheless, Jesus alludes to his coming ascension, his return back to the Father in heaven several times in John's gospel. And he does it increasingly here in what we call the upper room discourse. It's from John chapter 13 to chapter 17. And I want us to see in these verses here in chapter 16, Jesus alludes to the reality of his coming ascension. And he also unpacks for us certain implications that his ascension will have for us as his disciples regarding our relationship with God 
and regarding how we go on living for him and witnessing for him in the midst of a hostile world in which we live. So we're in John 16. As I said, we're in the midst of what's commonly called the upper room discourse. I believe these words, as I've been reading them in John 13 to 17, are the warmest, most affectionate words that Jesus ever spoke, that are recorded for us in the New Testament, that he ever spoke to his disciples. And I'd summarize this section as follows. At the beginning of chapter 13, John tells us that it's time for the annual feast of Passover in Jerusalem. So Jesus is going to do what every good Jew does. He's going to eat the Passover meal. And here he's doing that with his disciples. It's actually the final meal he'll eat with them. He ate with them daily for three years. This is the last meal he'll eat with his disciples before he leaves. And he knows that. He knows his time is short. His time has come to be betrayed, to die, to leave this world, to go back to the Father in heaven. And that means he will leave his disciples here on the earth without him. And he knows what's going to happen, what his disciples will experience that very night and then in the near distant future when he's taken away from them. So he, he does the loving thing, right? He knows his time is short, so he gathers them together one last time, has the Passover meal with them, and unloads this warm, affectionate instruction full of promises, beautiful words that he speaks to prepare them for what's going to happen to him and to them in his absence. Because, you'll remember, the disciples, they have a special commission from Jesus. He tells them that he's chosen them and appointed them that they should bear fruit and that their fruit should remain. He says when he sends the Spirit down to them, they will bear witness because they've been with him from the beginning. They will bear a special, unique eyewitness to his life to his death, to his resurrection, to his message of salvation. The same way God the Father sent Jesus into the world to bear witness to the truth of God, Jesus is leaving, and by leaving, he is sending his disciples into the world in a similar way, to bear witness to his message, to his truth, to who he is, to what he has done to redeem people from their sins to his way and plan of salvation. Now he knows that as they seek to do this, they're going to face difficult challenges, fierce opposition from a hostile world who hates Christ and those who follow him. And that opposition is going to threaten them. They're going to be tempted to fall away from Jesus in total unbelief. Or at the very least, they'll be tempted to be so overwhelmed with sorrow, discouragement, fear, disappointment, that they'll back off living and speaking boldly and courageously for Christ. And they'll give up powerfully witnessing for Him. 
So Jesus is saying these things to his disciples to strengthen them, to strengthen their faith in him, their confidence that he is the Christ sent from heaven, to encourage them to persevere in their commitment to live for him and to speak for him so that they would experience the fullness of the Spirit's power and presence in their lives and in their ministry, their gospel proclamation. So with that in mind, we pick up in chapter 16, right in the middle of Jesus' discourse in verse 16. At this point, Judas has already left. He's gone out to betray Jesus. And in chapter 15, Jesus and the disciples who are with him have gotten up. They've left the upper room. They are traveling to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they travel, Jesus says there in verse 16, look there. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. One Bible teacher called this the now you see me, now you don't prophecy of Jesus. I like that. But it's not completely accurate, is it? If we want to be really accurate, this is the now you see me, now you don't, and then you see me again prophecy of Jesus, right? A little while, and you will see me no longer. Again, a little while, and you will see me. Now, what do his disciples make of this statement? Well, like many other times in their experience with Jesus, they hear him say these words and they're totally confused. They're just baffled. They have no idea what he means by what he says. Look there at verses 17 and 18. John tells us, so, in light of that statement, some of his disciples began to say to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And, drawing back to his statement in verse 10, because I am going to the Father. Therefore they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. So it appears that Jesus makes this statement and then the disciples sort of somehow kind of huddle up off to the side amongst them, themselves, and they begin discussing what does Jesus mean by his statement in verse 16, and what did he mean earlier in verse 10 when he said, concerning righteousness, because I, I go to the Father. Now apparently, as they were discussing what Jesus meant by this, um, it became so clear, at least to one of the disciples, that they had no idea what Jesus meant, that he just bluntly blurts out, we do not know what he is talking about. Kind of refreshing. Sometimes I have a two-year-old daughter, and when I ask her a question, sometimes she just comes right out and says, Daddy, I don't know. And I actually appreciate that. You know, I just, okay, I know, you don't know. And they are just clueless about what Jesus is saying here. Now in verse 19, while they're, they're off to the side, but Jesus wants the disciples to know that he knows what they're wondering about. Look at verse 19. John says that Jesus knew 
that they wanted to ask him. Therefore, he said to them, excuse me, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? So Jesus wants them to know that he knows their question. And their question is pretty simple. Lord, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by a little while and you won't see me? In a little while and you will see me and you're going back, you're going to the Father. What do you, what do you mean by that? So Jesus continues in verse 20 and he begins to answer their question. Although, as you're about to see, he does it in typical Jesus fashion. Still very cryptic, not so clear and explicit in his answer. Notice how he does it, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, he's cryptic here, but I think we can see a bit of development and the relationship between what he said in verses 19 and 20. The first half of verse 20 is an explanation of Jesus' words in verse 19, a little while and you will see me no longer. So what Christ is telling them is that there's a, a short time coming when they will not see him. And as a result of that, they will be filled with sorrow. They will weep and lament. Now, interestingly, at the same time, he says that they're sorrowful, the world will what? Rejoice. It will be rejoicing. And then the second half of verse 20, it parallels Jesus' words in verse 19, and again a little while, and you will see me. So he says, a little while after I'm gone, you will see me again. And when you do see me, your sorrow will be transformed into joy. And then he illustrates that experience like a master teacher. Notice verse 21. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. Why? An account of the joy she experiences because a human being has been born into the world. My wife, Laura, is not here tonight with me. That's because she's at home taking care of our 12-day-old son. She gave birth to our second son, our second child, our first son, 12 days ago. So I had to, as I was going through this passage, I had to ask her, Laura, when you went into labor, did you feel sorrow? It's funny, some of you ladies are already laughing. I'm not sure exactly why. (laughs) Maybe that's a good thing. (laughs) Um, Interestingly, you know what she said? No, I didn't feel sorrow. I felt pain, but not sorrow. And it made me wonder, is Jesus just the typical man who thinks he knows what a woman experiences in labor and he's just taking a shot in the dark and he's totally missed it here? 
So I went back and I looked at the Greek word behind this that's translated, at least in my English Standard Version, as sorrow. And sure enough, it can mean physical pain. And I actually am inclined to think that that's a better way to translate this. That what he's talking about is the physical pain that a woman experiences when she enters into labor. And increasingly so, as those contractions come, more intense, more often, longer, stronger. She said it was painful, not sorrowful, it was painful. But she added, when Matthew came out, I totally forgot about all of that. Right? When a mother hears the cry of the baby out of the womb, when she sees with her physical eyes that one she's, at least in our day, only seen through 3D, maybe 4D imaging until then, in the flesh now with physical eyes and holds that baby to her chest with her own hand. She handles her own newborn baby. It's like the pain just disappears and it's totally transformed into sheer joy because now she has the reward of her labors. And in verse 22, Jesus says, so also, in the same way, you, my disciples, you have sorrow, interestingly, he says, you have sorrow now. So it's as though the sorrow he had just predicted had already started to set in. And perhaps he can see it in their hearts or he can see it on their faces. But he says, even now, you have the first fruits of this sorrow, but I will see you again. And when I do, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Now, I believe that here, Jesus is referring to his death and resurrection. I know there's different ways people take this, but I think what he means here is that in a little while, in less than 24 hours, he's going to be betrayed by Judas arrested and condemned to die by Jewish leaders and nailed to a cross by Roman soldiers. Then he will die, his body will lay in a sealed tomb and for that gap of time, his disciples will not see him. And while the world of unbelieving Jews and perhaps even some Romans are rejoicing that finally Jesus of Nazareth is dead and gone. His disciples would be filled with sorrow. Their master, who they had lived with for three years, who they had put their hope in, banked their life on, left everything to follow, had developed such an intimate relationship with him daily over those three years, was taken away from them in death. He was no more. And you see it, don't you? You see Mary weeping at the tomb. Where is he? Where have they taken my Lord? You see the disciples on the road to Emmaus, dejected. Jesus actually appears to them and says, well, what's wrong? Oh, Are you the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard? The one in whom we put our hope is dead. 
They're just sorely disappointed and discouraged. Here in John's Gospel in chapter 20, he tells us on Resurrection Sunday, that evening, the evening of the first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And in the midst of that fear-filled huddle, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. No doubt they were also filled with sorrow. He says, Peace be with you. John says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. Literally, they rejoiced. It's the same word Jesus uses here in chapter 16. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. You hear the similar language? They saw and they rejoiced. Their sorrow was transformed into joy. Christ's bodily resurrection caused the disciples' sorrow to turn into joy. And more than that, it ushered in a new era of lasting joy. Joy that Jesus said, no one, nothing could ever take away from them again. What did Jesus say to John on the island of Patmos? I was dead, but now I am alive forevermore, never to die again. They rejoiced when they realized that their Lord, their Savior was alive, alive from the dead. Then in light, in light of that reality, Jesus continues in verses 23 to 28. I want to read them together. You'll see why here in a moment. He says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Up until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day... You will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Yes, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Two times in these verses, Jesus says, in that day. I don't think here he's referring to a specific 24-hour period of time, but rather to a, a new season in the lives of his disciples, one that overlaps with a new era in redemptive history, in the unfolding plan of God's redemptive work through Jesus Christ. Now, up until this point in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus' focus has not primarily been upon his death and resurrection, though he has alluded to it several times. We, We just saw that. Instead, his primary focus has been on his ascension, how he will leave the earth and go back to the Father in heaven. In fact, up to this point, 12 times 
He has said to them either generally, I am going, I am going away, or specifically, I am going to the Father, I am going to the one who sent me. You remember the disciples' confusion earlier in our passage. It was not just over the little while you'll see me, a little while you won't. It was also over his statement that I am going to the Father. And notice here in verse 28, there he explicitly says, I've come from God, I've come from the Father, I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So the in that day phrase is bookended here with references to his ascension back into heaven. So I believe in that day refers to the time period not only after Jesus has been raised from the dead, but when he has left the earth and gone back to heaven. It's in that day, in this new age, after Christ has ascended, that the disciples will experience brand new things in their relationship with God. One of those new realities that Jesus emphasizes here is the disciples' experience of prayer. The way they will relate to God in prayer. Six times in those verses I just read, Jesus uses some form of the word ask. You heard it repeated over and over. It's his way of referring to verbal communication to God in prayer. More specifically, making request to God for things in prayer. What will their experience of prayer be like once Jesus ascends and goes to heaven? First, he says they will experience direct access to God in prayer. They will have direct access to God in prayer. Notice there in verse 24, he says that over the last three years or so that they've been with him, they have never asked God for one thing in his name up to that point. Instead, if they wanted to know something or if they wanted to ask for something, who did they go to? Jesus. They asked him for things. They asked him about things. But Jesus says there is a time coming very soon when he will no longer be with them physically. At that time, he says, you will no longer ask me about things or for things. Instead, you will ask God in prayer. And when they ask God in prayer, look at verse 26. Jesus says, it's not like you ask me, Jesus, and then I go to God on your behalf and ask him for you. This is not going to be like that. Instead, you will be able to go to God directly yourself. You will have direct access. You will be able to speak to God and ask God for things the same way you spoke to me when I was with you on the earth. That direct access because of this new relationship with God. And it's because of the work of Christ, including his ascension. His ascension is the culmination of his sacrifice. The writer to the Hebrews tells us, right, that Jesus, after being crucified and rising from the dead, he passed through the heavens. He left the earth. 
He went up into the heavenly tabernacle, into the true holy of holies, into the very presence of God himself. And there he did not present the blood of bulls and goats. He presented his own body that he had given up on the cross. He sprinkled the heavenly mercy seat of God with his own blood, as it were. He tore the veil, not just on earth, but the invisible veil that existed between a holy God and sinful people so that those who trust in him can have direct access to God in heaven. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high because he had finished his sacrificial work and now ascended, he intercedes for us. Therefore, the writer to the Hebrews says, having so great a high priest... We can draw near to God, directly in prayer to him through Jesus. The disciples, because of the ascension of Christ, would have direct access to God in prayer. But second, they would also experience confidence before God in prayer. Confidence before God. Why would they have this newfound confidence before God in prayer? Well, first, because they will be convinced of God's love for them. They will be convinced of God's love for them. Look again at verse 26. As I mentioned, Jesus says that when the disciples want to ask God for something, he's not going to go on their behalf and ask God for them. Now, at first sight, this seems like kind of like a negative thing. Oh, Why not, Jesus? Why wouldn't you do that for us? But actually, the reason he gives is a very positive thing. Look there. In verse 27, he says, For, because, this is why I won't go on your behalf to God. Because the Father himself loves you. You see, once I've ascended to the right hand of God and I'm interceding for you, you are now the objects of God's special unique, covenantal, fatherly love. A love that God does not have for every single human being in the world. Let me illustrate that. I love women. Let me explain. (laughs) Okay, hang on, hang on. I love my biological mother. Her name's Maria. I love my mother-in-law, Pam. She's at the house back in Rudaport with my wife. I love my paternal grandmother, Dolores. I love my two-year-old daughter, Abigail. I love my sisters in Christ. I love women made in the image of God, unbelievers in the world. But I have a special covenantal, unique, husbandly love for my wife, Laura. And I trust that every married woman in this room says, yes, yes, that's right. Looks at their husband and says, right? That's, That's right. That's how it should be. I've entered into a special, unique covenant with her. So my love for her is unique in that relationship. 
In the same way, God has a a special covenantal fatherly love for his children. For those, Jesus says here, right? For those who have loved him. For those who love Jesus and have believed that he has come from heaven, that God has sent him into the world, who believe that he is the Christ, that he has given his life on the cross for our sins, that he has been raised from the dead for our justification, that he has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, that he is reigning and ruling as king, and that he is soon coming back. To those who love him, who long for his appearing, who follow him and show their love and their obedience to him, as imperfect as it is, but who truly love him, Jesus says, you are the objects of God's special, unique, fatherly love. And because the disciples believe these things about Jesus, he says, you're loved by God. And the knowledge of that love will give them confidence before God in prayer. Right? It's just like when a, a little girl knows that her father loves her. I mean, he really cares about her. He delights to have her come into his presence. He pulls her up on his lap and says, tell me what's on your heart. I want to hear your joys. I want to hear your scrapes. I want to hear what you did today. What's exciting you? What fears do you have? What, what would you like? Bring me your request. A father who loves his daughter and the daughter knows that she's loved and that the father delights in her and in having her communicate things to him and request things from him. Well, she feels a confidence to run into the presence of that father at all times and she knows he won't push me away. He's not annoyed with me. He's not tired of me coming. He welcomes me. He embraces me. He pulls me up on his lap. He asks me. He draws out of me the desires of my heart. That daughter has a confidence. She's sure in the love of her father. Jesus says, in the same way, my disciples have a father in heaven who loves them, who cares about them, who's committed to their well-being, who delights when they come into his presence and unburden their hearts to him in prayer, who rejoices when they ask him for things, especially things that are really important to us. Jesus tells them this so that they will know it intellectually. But more than that, very soon after he's ascended, he's going to pour out his spirit into them. And then, not just intellectually, but experientially, the spirit of God is going to assure them of God's love for them as his adopted children. Notice verse 25 again. He says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. So Jesus has revealed many things to his disciples about God the Father up to this point. And he has more that he wants to say to them, but right now he tells them they're they're unable to bear it. They can't handle it. They can't take it for whatever reason right now. But when he's ascended and he pours out his spirit into his people, then they will have a revelation of the love of God, of the knowledge of God's love and care for them like they've never had before. They will be assured by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what Paul tells us in the book of Romans? One of the roles, the works of the Spirit 
He says, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through who? Through the Holy Spirit who has been poured out upon us. He says in chapter 8, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See, the disciples are going to experience a new confidence before God in prayer because they will be convinced by the words of Jesus and the presence of the Spirit of the Father's love for them. But also, this is, this is pretty cool, also because they will be convinced of the Father's wealth and generosity toward them. Notice the breadth of Jesus' words in verses 23 and 24. He says there in verse 23, whatever, note that word, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Do you see what a wide promise that is? Whatever you ask. What does he mean by whatever? Such a wide open promise. Why does he state it like this to them at this time? I'm not sure I fully understand it, but I think that there are a couple biblical examples of similar language that maybe help us understand what Jesus is doing here. Let me remind you of one of them. You recall the death of John the Baptist, right? He's imprisoned by Herod for speaking out against his marriage to his dead brother's widow. Herodias. He's in prison and Herod's birthday comes up. So what does Herod do? Throws a big feast for himself, right? Invites all the big shots of Galilee, all his high-ranking officials. They're all seated around the tables in his courts. And out comes Herodias' daughter. She does a dance. She pleases the king. And what does Herod say to her? Really interesting wording here. Listen closely to this. He says to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you, even up to half of my kingdom. You hear the similarity with Jesus' words here. Whatever you ask me, I will give you even up to half of my kingdom. Now just imagine with me, a little thought experiment. What do you think Herod would have done if in that moment, Herodias' daughter said, That's a funny thing, King, (laughs) because just this morning, I was sitting in my bedroom, rubbing my hands together, thinking how nice it would be to reign over half of your kingdom. So thanks for offering. How you want to split it up, north, south, or east, west? Which half am I going to get, King? Do you think if she would have said that, Herod literally would have given her rule and jurisdiction over half of his earthly kingdom? I don't think so. Don't think he literally meant that. If that's not what he meant, then it raises a question. Why did he say it then? Why did he use such a wide open promise like that? Well, I think for two reasons. He wanted the girl and all those big wig, big shots around him to know two things about him. First, he is a very wealthy man. He's a man with power and authority. 
He has a lot of people and land under his possession. So much so that even if he did give up half of his kingdom, it would not diminish his glorious reign one little bit. He wants them to know he has power and authority. He is a wealthy, rich man. But he also wants them all to know he's a generous man. He's generous. He's beneficent. He's large-hearted. He's inclined to give good gifts to his daughter-in-law, to his stepdaughter. And he wants her, therefore, to be encouraged to ask big things, even up to half of his kingdom. He's a rich, wealthy, powerful man. He's a generous man. And I think that's something of what Jesus is doing here in his words to his disciples. He wants them to know that their Father in heaven is not a weak, poor God, but he is a rich, powerful, almighty God. He owns cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all the silver and all the gold, Scripture says, in the world. He owns everything. And he wants them to know that. There is nothing they can ask him for that is too difficult for him to give. Nothing they can ask for is too big outside of his means to fulfill their request. And more than that, he wants them to know that they're not just coming to a God who can, who's able to give them what they ask for, even great big things, but that he's a God who's inclined to give them the good things that they ask for. He's a generous God. He's not a tightwad. You don't have to peel his fingers open to get what you ask from him. He's large-hearted. He's more inclined to give good gifts to his children than we are to ask him for them. The problem doesn't lie with him, it lies with us. He's a large-hearted, generous God who's pleased with us and loves to give us even bigger beyond what we can think or ask. Now lest we take that and get carried away, Jesus does say here that there is a limiting factor. It's this, one limiting factor. He says that their request should be in line with his character and his purposes. Where do I see that? It's in that phrase, in my name. He says, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Twice. In the name of Jesus. I think we know this, but it's a helpful reminder. Praying in the name of Jesus is not meant to be some perfunctory, formulaic, rote add-on. Some magical formula that we just tack on to the end of our prayers. It's not meant to be that. That might be taking the name of Jesus in vain, if anything. No, I'm inclined to understand praying in the name of Jesus as going before God in the place of Jesus as his representative. The same way Jesus says, you go out and you preach the gospel in my name. You extend a cup of cold water in my name. You do it on my behalf as my ambassadors of my character, of my mercy, of my message I take the phrase the same way here. We're going to God 
sent there by Jesus Christ. As though, this doesn't happen, but as though if God were to say to us, or was to say to us, what are are you, Marco, what are you doing here in my heavenly courts before my royal throne asking me, where do you get off thinking that you're allowed to be in my presence and to expect confidently that I will give you the things you ask for? That I can say, oh, I'm, I'm not here in my own name. No, I'm here because your son Jesus told me to come. He has sent me in his name into your presence. And if I'm going to go into the presence of God in the name of Jesus, then my prayer requests better represent Jesus. They better be in line with his purposes, with his will, with his character, with his promises that have been revealed to us by the Spirit in the Scriptures. He says, when you pray Christ-centered prayers that are in line with Jesus like that, then you can have total confidence that God will give you whatever you ask for in his name. Whatever you ask for, for his sake. The disciples, if they go to God like this in prayer, they will experience confidence before God in prayer. So direct access to God in prayer, confidence before God in prayer, And then third, they will experience joy in God through answered prayer. Look again at verse 24. He says, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Why? So that your joy may be full. This, this I believe, is a beautiful insight into the heart of Jesus for his disciples. He desires us to have not just partial joy, but fullness of joy. And he knows that these disciples are going to go out into a world to live for him and proclaim his gospel. And when they do, they're going to face disappointments and circumstances that will cause them great heartache. He knows that. He's already told them it's going to happen. They're going to lose, maybe like some of you here tonight, close family members who separate from them and cut them off from their family because they've chosen to follow Jesus as the Christ. Or more generally, they're going to have scores of people who they communicate the gospel to and person after person after person refuses to believe their message, totally rejects their message. And surely, as they look out into the world of unbelievers and they see all the unbelief, all the sin around them, their hearts will break and will mourn over that reality. That Jesus, namely, is not getting what he's worthy of from people whom he's created and people whom he's died to redeem. And in the midst of that, Jesus wants his people to have joy. He wants us to have joy. And he says that that joy can only be found in God through prayerful dependence upon God, through prayerful communion with God, in the realization that God is our Father and that he loves us and that he hears our prayers and that he gives good gifts to us for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. And perhaps in the context here of the Upper Room Discourse, what this specifically looks like is the disciples going to God and asking him for the spirit 
to perform miracles through them to testify to people that they are true messengers of God, that their message is from God, and that the people who hear their message actually are convicted of their sin and repent and trust in the risen Christ. Seems to me like those are the greater works that Jesus alludes to in chapter 14 when he says, I will go to the Father, I will send the Spirit, and you will do greater works. And he links it there with asking the Father in his name. They're going to have that that joy of seeing God in their midst, raising the dead to life, healing crippled people, and more than that, healing sin-sick souls who hear the message that Jesus is the Christ, he's alive from the dead, and they turn from all other loyalties and allegiances, and they're publicly baptized, and they swear allegiance to King Jesus, and they see the Lord by his Spirit, building his church, working through them in the world. God is answering their prayers. You see that in the book of Acts. And they're filled with great joy in the Holy Spirit as he's doing this. These are, glo- these are glorious things that Jesus says, in light of my ascension, it's going to radically transform my followers' relationship with God as their father and the way they experience him in prayer. What are the disciples going to do? How are they going to respond to such glorious things? Look at verses 29 and 30. John says, Jesus' disciples then said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you have come from God. Now, at first, it seems like they get it. That's a great response. It's about time, maybe, we might say. They finally understand what he's saying, and they're exercising a humble confidence in who he is and in his words. But their confession of faith is really mixed with serious misunderstanding and maybe even partly rooted in self-confidence. Why do I say that? Look at how Jesus responds to them in verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Like, in this moment, you're believing? Okay, but know this. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each of you to his own home, and you will leave me alone. So much for loyal confidence in King Jesus. In response to their strong declaration, Jesus sadly informs them that very soon they will abandon him and they will leave him to suffer alone. But Jesus wants them to know that even when they have abandoned him, the Father will not abandon him. Look there at verse 32 again. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone. Why? For the Father is with me. He says, God the Father will still be with me to support me and encourage me and uphold me as I continue to obediently submit myself to his will. One last question. 
Why has Jesus said these things to his disciples? Well, I'm glad you asked. He tells us in verse 33. (laughs) I have said these things. Look there, verse 33. I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He tells his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. Not you might, but you will have difficulty, pressure. You will have it. In chapter 15, he's told them the world will hate you. It will persecute you. It will kick you out of their religious gatherings. It will actually think it's serving God by putting you to death. That's how serious it's going to get. As the disciples seek to live for Jesus and boldly proclaim his exclusive gospel, they're going to experience threats, dangers, imprisonments, beatings, false accusations, plots against their lives. They're literally going to be searched for and hunted down like animals by their enemies. And as I said earlier, all of this is going to put a pressure on them, a thlipsis, a tribulation that will tempt them, will tempt them to become fearful and anxious and lose heart, to want to stop living for Jesus because it's too costly, or at least stop speaking out in a confrontational, courageous way for Jesus, right? Just kind of live for Jesus in private. It's a lot safer to do that. But in the midst of that, when they're tempted to give up, to lose heart, Jesus wants them to have the right perspective. That's what's important. Perspective. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, National calamity. The king of Israel is dead. What do we do now? We've got enemies who are threatening to attack us. We've got no king. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw perspective. What did he see? The Lord, right? The Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne high and exalted. The train of his robe was filling the temple. You see, the king's not dead. He's not dead. He's alive and well. He can't die. He's, the throne is not empty. The throne of thrones is filled, and it's filled by the Lord. And in the Gospel of John, he tells us that was Jesus Christ who he saw seated on that throne. It's what John needed on the island of Patmos, right? In Revelation chapter 1. He writes these letters. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the kingdom, the advance of the gospel, and in the tribulation that comes for my testimony for Jesus Christ. He's been banished from the empire onto the island of Patmos. What does he need? Perspective. What does he get? What does God give him? A vision of the risen Christ. 
the glorified Son of God, risen, alive, reigning. It says in chapter 4, I was called up into heaven and I saw a throne standing. Not toppled over, standing, secure, sure, perspective. That's what Jesus wants his disciples, that's what he wants us to have tonight, perspective. He says, the world will hate you, but the Father loves you. The world will reject you, but the Father welcomes you. Following me will cost you everything in this life, but you have an inheritance coming that will far outweigh anything you have to give up for the sake of following me. Unbelief and sin will be rampant in the world. It will appear as though the world is winning and that we at times are part of a a losing effort. But when we're tempted to believe that, Jesus says, never forget, I have overcome the world. I, Jesus, have overcome the world. I have waged war against the devil and the satanic order in the world that manifests itself in rebellion against God and hatred toward me and my followers. And I have victoriously conquered them through my death and resurrection. And I have ascended into heaven. I have been crowned Lord of all. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. I have sat down upon my throne and my enemies are systematically being subdued under my feet. Get that in your mind. That's reality. That's more real than whatever's going on in this world. Jesus says, I have ushered in a new age one in which I am building my church and the gates of death will not prevail against it. I have set in motion in this world like a grain of mustard seed that becomes a gigantic tree slowly but surely. I have set in motion the advance of my kingdom and I guarantee that one day it will culminate with men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation in the kingdom of God, worshiping and serving me. In the end, he says, I win. You you want to know how to interpret the book of Revelation? Jesus wins. It's really simple. I don't know why we struggle so much with that. No, I do, but that's just, that's what, Jesus wins. The knowledge of God The glory of God is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth its successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. It's coming. So Jesus says, in light of that, take heart. Don't be discouraged, be encouraged. Go on being strong and courageous for Christ. Living holy, godly lives. Telling people the gospel. Because I have overcome the world. And you, through faith in Christ, have also overcome the world. You're citizens of his kingdom. Soldiers of his army. You're on the winning side. The victor side. 
The war has already been won. It's been waged by Jesus. He has trounced the devil already. That's why Paul can say, even when we preach the gospel and we're an aroma of death to death, what does he say? Jesus leads us in triumphant procession. We're in a victory march, even when it looks like we're defeated. That's why he can say, even when we're like sheep being slaughtered, put to death for Jesus, we overwhelmingly conquer through Christ who loved us. He can say that because Christ is alive and he's ascended. He's at the right hand of God. His kingdom is coming. His will is being done. His sovereign purposes are being accomplished. All is going exactly according to his ultimate plan. And that ought to cause us to praise God and to embolden us to live for Christ. And that's what I want to just exhort you in closing. Those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, who are trusting in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins to make you right with God, and who have sincerely committed yourselves to follow him, to obey his law and commandments in your lives. Here tonight, we're in a similar situation as these disciples. How so? Jesus is not here with us physically, right? He's in heaven at the right hand of God. But we're here on earth. And we have the same mission, don't we? To go out and sow the seed of the word of Jesus Christ. To proclaim his gospel to show his mercy and compassion and to speak his truth into the lives of people around us. Also known as to make disciples. To baptize under the authority of the triune God those who respond in faith to the gospel and to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded us. That commission has been passed down still to us. Telling the gospel to people is not the business only of professional missionaries or gifted evangelists or ordained full-time pastors. It is both the duty and the privilege of every follower of Jesus. I mean, if you've tasted the kindness of Christ and you know what he is worthy of, and you know what awaits those who die outside of Christ, you will be compelled, will you not, to talk to people about Jesus, to lay upon them the claims of Christ, to call them to turn from their sin and to believe in the Son of God. Because you long for them to be saved, and you long for Christ to get the glory he's worthy of in their lives. But if we do that, if we really commit ourselves to living consistently holy lives for Jesus and speaking his offensive truth to the people around us, we're going to also face the same kind of persecution that these disciples did. Jesus did not say you might have tribulation. He said you will have tribulation. Paul said, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of heaven. 
He said, all those who desire to live godly in this present age will be persecuted. So if we're not, what does that mean? It might mean that we're not as committed to living godly for Jesus and proclaiming his gospel unmixed, straightforward, in its offensive, naked truth, as we ought to be. Now, we should praise God that we live in a country where there's freedom of religion, where we're not pursued and persecuted the way these disciples were. But at the same time, we need to take heed because Jesus did say, woe to you if all people speak well of you. For so they spoke of the false prophets of old. Right? Are we living for Christ? Are we speaking out against the wickedness and the ungodliness in our culture and in our country? Are we standing for his truth? Are we proclaiming his supremacy, his exclusive claims upon every single person? If we do that, we will receive backlash. This world is full of enemies of Christ who hate him and they're hostile to us and to his message. And I think things are intensifying in the world. And if God doesn't intervene, perhaps they're going to intensify here in South Africa as well. I mean, you get it in the progressive, liberal, religious world, even the so-called Christian mainline denominations. We're going to get it from traditional African culture. We're going to get it from secular Western European culture. We're going to get it from other mainline religions like Islam and Hinduism as they rise in popularity. Every one of these, at one point or another, are diametrically opposed to the teachings of Jesus Christ about man's inherent wickedness, about God's holy hatred of sin and his wrath against sinners, about the reality of hell, that the Bible is a unique revelation of God that is supremely authoritative over all other traditions, that faith in Jesus is the only way to be right with God, that Christ is to be supremely worshipped and loved above all other people, living or dead. That God genetically determines a person's sex, male or female, at birth. And that God's good design for the expression and enjoyment of sexual desires is only between a biological man and a biological woman within the covenant of marriage. The media is pushing, not just a godless, but an anti-Christian agenda that is going to increase unless God intervenes. And we should pray that he would. We should work that he would. But if he doesn't, there's going to be increased pressure upon us in the workplace, in our families, in the schools, maybe eventually through legal means to try to shut us up and keep us from faithfully following Jesus, standing on his word, and boldly confessing his gospel and his exclusive supremacy. And we're going to be tempted, if we aren't already, to be overwhelmed in fear, in sorrow, in anxiety, to lose heart, to want to give up. Maybe, if you're like me, just to sort of slip 
back into a drunken stupor of worldliness, just get so wrapped up in the pleasures and entertainments and comforts of this life, the temporal concerns of family and housing, and that it just eats away at our zeal for Christ. And it distracts us. And it consumes us. And we're not as concerned for the cause of Christ in this country and in our neighbors and in our family members and at our workplace as we ought to be. And when we're tempted to do that, Christ says, believer, take heart. Remember that he is alive from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. He is reigning at the right hand of God. His rule is advancing in the world. He is coming back soon to rescue you and me and to bring us into the everlasting kingdom of God. God the Father loves you. If you're in Christ, he loves you. He's poured out his spirit into your hearts to assure you of his love for you. That spirit bears witness that you are sons of God. And if sons, heirs with Christ you suffer with him, you will be glorified with him. And as my father-in-law says, this is amazing. If the down payment of our inheritance is the Holy Spirit, how great must our inheritance be? Have you thought about that? The down payment is just a small portion of the reality of the full inheritance. If the Holy Spirit, God, the third person of the Trinity, is the down payment, how great of an inheritance is waiting for us in the coming kingdom of Christ? Take heart. That cannot be taken away from you. Go on living and speaking boldly for Jesus. And go to God in prayer confidently. Ask him for big things. Believe him for big things. Pray for the conversions and transformations of the people around you that you're witnessing to. And expect God to work for Christ's sake. Pray that God would rend the heavens and pour out his spirit, have mercy on this country, and revive and awaken this country and the church to be the holy, prophetic, bold spokesman for Jesus Christ. And to go and proclaim the truth of his gospel that people would be one to him. As you do that, and God answers, your joy will be full. And you will know a joy in God that is better than anything this life can offer and anything that death can take. True, lasting, satisfying joy in the living God. And finally, I just want to say something to those here tonight who are not yet believers in Jesus. And I say that intentionally, not yet Because who knows, maybe tonight God will convert you by the power of his spirit. He will if he wants to. Who are not yet believers in Christ. I want you to know that the Apostle John who recorded these words from Jesus, this conversation, he tells us in chapter 20 of this book the reason why he's written this book. He says, so that you may believe, that you may confidently trust that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the King, that God sent from heaven to earth to save his people from their sins and to bring them into the kingdom of God. And he says, and by faith in his name, he wants you to have eternal life. That's what he's after in his book. 
He wants you to have eternal life. Here in these verses, we've heard from the lips of Jesus and from his apostles. He's come from the Father. He's come into the world. He's given up his life on the cross as a payment for our sins. He's risen from the dead. He's coming back soon to judge the living and the dead. And friend, if you're here right now outside of Christ, you are seated in your chair, a rebel against King Jesus. You are at war with the Son of God. As long as you continue to reject him in your unbelief, you are under the coming wrath of God. And if you die tonight or he comes back tonight, you will experience that unending, tormenting wrath of God forever in the lake of fire. And I just beg you tonight, I plead with you in the name of Jesus Christ to turn from your sins to have mercy on your soul, to turn away from this wicked generation and to save yourself from the coming wrath of God. Flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Though you have offended him with your sin and your unbelief up till now, he stands this very moment ready and willing to forgive you. He is ready to embrace you. He will forgive your sins if you will but turn from them and believe in him. He will show mercy to you He is a merciful king. He will forgive you. He will make you right with God. He will make you a child of God. He will put his spirit within you. He will set you free from sin. He will give you an inheritance in his kingdom. You would be an utter fool to reject such an offer from such a great king and to die in your sins. Why would you die in your sins? Turn. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.